Rahamem Ecology Centre is an ecological ministry of the Institute of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea, facilitating a new worldview for our times and our relationship with the natural world through education, spirituality and advocacy. For more information about us and our programs, please visit www.rahamim.org.au. This podcast was produced by Anastasia Freeman. Pat Long is an earth literacy and spirituality facilitator. A former Melbourne-based Brigidine sister, Pat became an earth song presenter and coordinator after years spent as an intern at Genesis Farm in New Jersey. Pat's powerful story of transformation, woven from the worldview of the Christian tradition into a new story, inspired her to share similar transformative practices in her workshops and retreats over the past 10 years. I had a conversation with Pat during her extended residency at Rahamim Ecology Centre, where she has been mentoring the education team. I'm Sally Neves, I'm the education coordinator at Rahamim. So welcome Pat to Rahamim. It's such a delight to have you with us as we're um, working away on the same work that you've been working on for a lot longer than us. And to have you um, mentoring our educators is a real gift, so thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, I've really enjoyed the experience so far, Sally, so thank you for this opportunity. So I might just leap in and start asking you about the trajectory of your life, if that's okay with you. Hmm. Um, So given your life and work so far, it's interesting to me to know a little about how you started out in life and I was wondering if you could tell us something about your influences growing up and especially your religious or spiritual background growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up on a, a small farm in central Victoria uh, in what used to be a gold mining area when, um, in the 1850s and uh, part of a large family, a large Catholic family with traditional practices uh, trying to make a living on the land and having a sense of struggle and it being a great challenge to uh, survive in that landscape. Uh, because it wasn't particularly fertile land. And having a sense of uh, how precious water is because we had our own rain tanks and um, there would be droughts um, quite often and the fear of uh, running out of water gave a sense that um, of scarcity, I suppose, uh, in, that, in that place. Uh, so I grew up with a sense of this land is here for us Um, We're trying to make a living out of it. I had no sense of what Earth herself might be wanting or what would be good for Earth in this particular place. That that was not not in my consciousness at all. Um, And then somehow you went from from that whole world to uh, Genesis Farm in New Jersey. So Mm -hmm. you spent significant time there. You were there in 1996. And again in 97, 98, and yet again in 2007 and 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was going on at that time that led you to hear about Genesis Farm? And what was the sense of need that arose for you to get there in the first place? Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, I was um, a principal of a secondary school which was closing down, and at the end of the, that period I was to have a a year of sabbatical renewal 
A couple of years beforehand, um, an Irish priest, Deirdre O'Boriku, had been in Melbourne and he had given a talk to a whole group of people. There were about 100 of us there. And I remember coming out of that talk and feeling like something was deeply moving inside me. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was uh, talking about what was happening at the atomic level and talking a bit about um, what we're uncovering now through the scientific world and the implications of that for our spirituality. And the one thing I recall from it was um, him talking about quarks and how they how they work in threes and how they're all in relationship and you know at this minuscule level and it was just intriguing to me so when I was given the opportunity to study I um I don't know how I got in touch with him but I, I must have written a letter to say I had some sabbatical time and I said did he teach courses or what could he recommend and that I'd heard him in Melbourne etc so he recommended a number of things he said well if he, he didn't teach courses at that time. So he was saying, uh, if you want this experience, go to an ashram in India. If you want this experience, do this. But there's also this place in the States called Genesis Farm run by Sister Miriam McGillis, and that might be of interest to you. Uh, I haven't been there myself, but, you know, there's um, there are good reports of what, what she's doing there. So I thought, oh, well, this sounds interesting. So uh, I made contact with Genesis Farm and joined their spring uh, 12-week residential program yes and that changed my life I have to say so it started with a two-week intensive with a much larger group and then the what had been presented in those two weeks was explored over the rest of the time mainly by um, having a little bit of input on a Monday doing your own study and research through the week and then presenting a paper on what you'd learnt on the Friday morning and that was accompanied by daily ritual practices outside and uh, volunteering in the community garden, etc. So becoming immersed in the life of Genesis Farm as well as doing the study at the same time. And that was accredited through a university in Florida, St Thomas, as part of a master's in pastoral ministry called Earth Ministry. Hmm. Mm. So this is in 1996 first, huh? Correct, yes. At that time, did you already have a sense of the ecological crisis going on? Uh, not, not in comparison with what I understood when I, when I got there, really. Um, I knew certain things, but my focus up to that point had more been a social justice perspective and looking at impacts on the poor, which of course are totally interrelated but that there was still that sense of separation at mm. the time and you know no uh, no real appreciation of you know the source of the of, of, of everything mm. there was sort of this you know really separate dualistic view of the world still very much in in me when mm. I went to Genesis mm. so something fairly powerful must have happened when you when you were on your sabbatical and you went to Genesis Farm and you did all this study because you kept going back. <laughs> <laughs> what was it that drew you back to Genesis Farm? Uh, well, I, within two weeks of doing that intensive, at the end of that intensive, I felt like my whole body was opening up to something new, just all of me. And I remember walking the cosmic walk spiral uh, at the end of that two weeks, which was to conclude that section of the course, and tears were just streaming down my face, and I just felt totally opened up 
to something new and I didn't know quite what it was at that point. I, I knew I needed and wanted to do more. And by the end of the course too, I was sort of feeling like I would love to have a place like this in Australia. I would love to be part of a place like this. So that fed into it, I think, yes. So there's a lot of newness that was coming to you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when, when we embrace something new, other things fall away. Mm -hmm. um, mm. Was that what it was like for you? Yes, it, it, this became my, a really strong focus of my life and mm. a lot of the, the, what had been you know, part of the everyday or part of the things I thought were important assumed a, difference impo a different importance, different level of importance because there was a whole new way of looking at the world. There's a whole new way of understanding how everything was. It kind of turned it upside down to a certain extent. Um, and I was just so energised by these new insights that I, the rest of it paled into somewhat insignificance in a way. I was in some sort of altered state, if you want, maybe. I don't know. Not being very rational <laughs> or logical about what I should be doing, perhaps. Yeah. Hmm. Who was influencing your thinking at that time? What were you reading or hmm. listening to? Or? Hmm. Well, a lot of, at that time, Thomas Berry and Brian Swim were key, um, key writers and thinkers. And uh, I, there were other interesting, uh, challenging uh, works too, particularly when we were looking at, we looked at um, how earth functions. Earth is self-governing, earth is self-healing, earth is self-nourishing. So in relation to those sorts of things, we would have a whole set of literature of people who were trying to rethink, say, agriculture or rethink um, architecture or rethink economics, a different model that was more in harmony with earth and earth's health and earth's emerging. So there were lots, I can't name many now, there was one that was um, quite significant, it was called um, Shattering and it was about the loss of seed biodiversity. Mm -hmm. uh, so there were books like that that really shaped um, my, my view of what was going on in the world in mm. addition to saying, well, where do we come from and how do we belong here? Yeah. So... There's a lot, of, a lot going on for you, embracing a different worldview and uh, taking on this newness. How did that imp impact your religious worldview? Uh, it, it challenged my religious worldview greatly. Uh, it put it into an, a totally different context. And one of the benefits of um, being at Genesis Farm over the time, particularly when I did that internship the next year to two years uh, part of that internship was sitting in on the programs again mm -hmm. and eventually leading little bits and pieces of them but mm -hmm. I had the opportunity then to hear Miriam McGillis the founder uh, often we would meet in the morning uh, we would do a morning body prayer we would go into the TP and she would do it uh, just a like a 20 minute maybe um, reflection on something to do with the, the body prayer or something to do with some religious practice and a, a way of try herself trying to re-articulate the religious experience in this new context. 
So I had that experience for those two years and that, I guess, also helped me place some of the, the shift in, in perspective. I must say I readily let go of quite a few things because I'd already become quite critical of some of the, uh, I guess, the structural um, hierarchical views within the tradition and the place of women within the tradition and there was already a certain critique going on so it was easy enough to say well um, it, that's not adequate now it's had its time and it opened up certain things but it's not adequate now for what the world needs yeah and yet so many others have um, stuck with the tradition and choose to wrestle with it with the two Mm -hmm. understandings and, and try to integrate them like Miriam McGillis herself remained a Dominican sister of Caldwell and others in your journey have remained um, part of religious institutions so what insights do you have about what happens for people on the verge of something new and how do they wrestle with that? Hmm. Well uh, everyone's journey is an individual journey and Everyone is different. If, we, if we're all the same, it would be a blah world. In fact, Brian Swim has this brilliant ex explanation of how the whole thing would collapse if we didn't have diversity. So uh, each person has, has her, his, her own way of, um, uh, I guess, making sense of life and make their own choices. Uh, for me, there was something about the public nature of being a religious sister in a Catholic tradition and regardless of what's, what I might have believed myself or spoke, you know, you are still part of that institution and for me there was a conflict mm. and I was so engrossed in the, in the new story, for want of a better word, that I, I didn't want to be spending my time, you know, working out how to stay within it. I wanted to mm. let it go in that sense, but still remain connected because obviously I had strong relationships with people within the group and wanted to still work on the, the, the shift from one particular way of viewing spirituality and religion to perhaps another one, but I didn't want to be part of that institution mm. anymore. I felt like... I couldn't stay there. So, Pat, I know you've prepared some texts, some of the influential texts that have worked away at you for a number of years, and particularly at that time, maybe around when you were at Genesis Farm. Would you tell us the story behind one of them before sharing it with us? Mm -hmm. So, during the time at Genesis Farm... Uh, one of the things we did was look at um, Thomas Berry's 12 principles for understanding the universe and the universe process. Mm. And we did a number of things around that, but just trying to open up what were those principles and what did they actually mean. Uh, and one of the things we did was um, create a little prayer shawl. It was uh, like just a piece of cloth. And the, the task was to sort of, uh, pull out threads of the cloth and then uh, weave something into it to represent each of the principles. And that was a lovely way of just trying to ground and integrate some of the things Thomas said because uh, it, moving from one worldview to another uh, is a huge shift and 
just to sort of be able to uh, see, okay, well, what does that mean in a new context? What, did it, what would it have meant to me before I moved into this new context? Uh, and what does it mean now? So just a couple of very short statements from Thomas that uh, have stayed with me since that time, over 20 years now. And the first is, we are a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. And that was something that resonated very deeply with me, that sense that we are all integrated, we are all connected, we are all one, we've all come from the very same source. And to just have that as something before me, we are a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects, seemed to um, personify, in a way, that, that shift from the dualistic to the integrative, or whatever words we put to those shifts. And the second, which linked me into Earth's danger, I suppose, and I can't remember how, uh, how I came across this, um, it's quite well known, but it just really gave me an anchor for how do we act and what do we do. And it's called, well, it says, the human cannot even make a blade of grass, but there's not likely to be a blade of grass in the future unless the human nurtures and protects it. So that was a startling wake-up call in terms of Okay, we are now as a species so pervasive on the planet that nothing is indifferent to our actions. So it, it stands as a reminder of where humans uh, are now in their presence on the planet. And even though Earth without us was functioning so well for all that time, we, we now have this pervasive presence and influence and we need to be aware of it. Thank you. That really gives us an insight into what was going on in terms of what you say, everything turning upside down. And I'm curious about what happened to you after that. You returned to Australia. What was Earth Song, and, and what was this project trying to do? Mm -hmm. So when I came back after that internship, um, uh, Earthsong hadn't started at that point, but there was uh, a couple who had come over and um, completed the long-term program at Genesis who were interested also in starting a project. And um, that started out for a little while, but just couldn't happen. I was part of that, um, but really we didn't have the backing or we hadn't thought it through enough, really. Mm -hmm. So in 2003, Anne Boyd, Bridgetine's sister, had gathered a group any religious from any religious order to come together to explore and envision what might uh, a project look like which was helping us to transition from one worldview into another along the lines of what we'd experienced, what I'd experienced at Genesis Farm. And there were, I don't know, about 25 people, I think, involved in that. I was not engaged with it at the time because that was just at the time when I had left the order. So uh, they had discussions over about six months. They created a vision statement about what Earthsong was about and the timing of it and the need for it was part of that uh, statement itself. 
And as a result, um, they invited anyone, anyone from those religious orders, any of the leadership team, those responsible, to um, become sponsors of the project. So it would be a combined project, not just belonging to one religious order, but it would be as many as who wanted to join forces to bring this ecological worldview into being through this project. And uh, Anne herself became the project coordinator and began the project. She started it, she was living in a little house in a suburb and it started there. Uh, there were three others of us who were invited to become part of a presenting team, presenting programs. And we would meet once a week uh, in her house and um, just say, what, what could we do? We all felt such newcomers to it and so inarticulate and unable to be daring to present a program that we felt, um, you know, quite inadequate. But nonetheless, we thought, we've, we've got to keep doing it. We'll learn together along the way. Uh, it was also at a time when the church was not always um, comfortable with this shift in worldview. And uh, there was a time where um, the official hierarchy of the church in Melbourne was questioning some of the things that were happening there, not just with Song, but with any other related ecological group who were affiliated with the Catholic Church. And so there were certain restrictions put on the group in terms of where we could advertise. We weren't allowed to advertise in the Catholic churches and so on. So uh, Earthsong never ever had a, uh, any land or anything. It was beyond the possibilities financially, mm. uh, which meant then that Earthsong was more visiting and travelling other places, uh, although the place that we ended up having some space. Um, we used to host uh, events there, but it wasn't our space. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So ideally, um, I, would have, I, th I would have loved to have had the integration of the, of the learning and the place together because I'd experienced that at Genesis and, I'd, and that was one of the really powerful things for me was that the land and the practices, the food what the conversation, mm. everything was geared towards trying to live in a different way. Mm. It was called re-inhabiting re the human Genesis mm. farm was a sort of its byline. So, or yeah. so Earthsong just, I guess it just fumbled along and found its way really. Mm. Hmm. And um, so you were, you were giving workshops with religious mm -hmm. um, who were participating in the workshops. Mm -hmm. Who else did you extend the work out to? Uh, we had various forays into different uh, church groups, uh, Uniting Church and so mm -hmm. on. We also always wanted to be part of school um, education. Mm. So there were opportunities as time went on to uh, provide workshops for staff, spirituality days, uh, and also to do certain things at different year levels in different school settings. Um, we uh, did some work with um, justice and democracy groups within a series of schools. The Bridgetine Sisters have one of those, and they had an annual conference every year. We would often be presenters at, at that conference. Uh, the Mercy uh, Seeds of Justice group, we have presented there a few times. Mm. Um, Occasionally we would be invited to uh, do workshops within a larger conference and would present to the Principals Association, for example. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and for a couple of years, there was a Catholic in Melbourne, there was a Catholic sustainability group and they would hold a, uh, an event um, where they were giving awards to the primary schools for their sustainability efforts and they would always have keynotes and workshops and things happening there. So, um, Yeah, and when you try to measure that influence, it must be very difficult. Were you under any kind of pressure to measure that? Uh, mostly not. Mm. Um, mostly the governing body were very supportive of our work and mm. just encouraged us. They were interested in some of the things we were doing and just wanted, mm. is it just kept, um, I think, being uh, pleasantly surprised that this tiny little project that was about originally um, reaching out to the religious within mm. the sponsoring groups um, moved beyond that and mm. extended and... Um, I think the other element, of course, was the journal, which I haven't mentioned. And mm. I was not involved much with the journal except in the last, probably, well, the past nine years or so. Mm. But prior to that, that was really Anne's vision with an editorial committee um, mm. working very hard. I think the feedback we still get now whenever anyone meets us is responses from people who've actually read the journal mm. or loved the photos in the journal mm. or, you know. So you can't measure that in any accurate kind of way. Mm. And we were never under pressure really to measure it. I think at the time when we were make, when people were making the decision about the future, uh, it wasn't about whether the project had been effective or not or how effective or whether they, we needed to think about the numbers or there weren't mm. any of those computations mm. going on. It was more about what does the future look like, what can be afforded and who might carry it forward. Mm. They, they were the key things, mm. really, I think. Yeah. So this is the journal called Earth Song. That's correct. Which I understand is now freely available online. Yes. Yeah, what a great resource, too. Mm. And Legacy to Leave. Um, because Earth Song actually has closed now. It came to a, a, a final point at the end of, end of Last year. 2017. Mm -hmm. Why did it close? Uh, well, a decision was taken that it would not be financially viable into the future. There, was, uh, there wasn't a succession plan. There had been attempts to explore possibilities. A, a Friends of Earthsong group was formed to see, is there a group that might have some new ideas that might take it as... A, as a project would take it forward. There was, uh, because Anne is a religious sister and didn't require a salary, any replacement would mean an extra funding and the orders themselves were uh, not able to fund it in any other way. We had explored other possibilities for funding which uh, didn't eventuate in anything much, mm. partly because it's a field that's hard to describe in mm. terms that funding bodies will <laughs> respond to. Yeah. Uh, it can sound a bit you know, airy-fairy or unclear or for people still in a worldview that's very um, dualistic and hierarchical, mm. it makes no sense to them and they think we're, you know, not doing anything worthwhile in the world. So uh, it also had... I think any organisation too goes through a... All organisations go through a phase. They sort of start out, they're pioneering, all the energy's there, it grows. And there comes a point where things start to you know, they go beyond that peak. Mm. And unless something new sort of comes out of that and re-energises and reinvigorates, um, unless there's a way to do that, then mm. maybe it's the right thing to close. I mean, we could have kept going, doing what we were doing, but 
really for how long and mm. uh, and to what end. And mm. it, what came out too from some of our investigation was just uh, the number of people who had been influenced who were actually doing things in their own field and mm-hmm. in their own way and in, with their own families and they had they had been impacted by it and they were they were doing things and we think well who knows where things go we can't measure a lot of that mm. and uh, and it it felt in the end it felt like the right decision you were running ritual groups uh, for a while in Melbourne mm. can you speak a bit about that about ritual and and why is it so important to us? Oh, well, it reaches into our whole being if it's if it's done well, I think, and it enables then a, a, a creative articulation of something that if I just speak it, it's, it doesn't have the same impact. Uh, and we, well, many people have grown up in a tradition of ritual. Uh, which you know no longer holds great meaning for them, mm. and so there is a longing, I think, in people who to find a ritual that is appropriate for and for mm. this consciousness and this awareness, this ecological view. Mm. So, hmm, I'm not sure really what it is about ritual. There are all sorts of elements. Anything that engages us totally, you know, in the in in the old ritual, the things like incense and. Mm. candles and all those sorts of things like and and music all of those things enrich us I think and mm. nourish us and and you can see elements of all those things in in this kind of ritual too it's mm. it, um, grounded in another way of seeing the world and nonetheless a number of those um, techniques if you want them or mm. practices are part of the ritual mm. Yeah, it seems like we're searching for ways to have these sorts of experiences because the old rituals are no longer meaningful to us. Yes. And, and therefore we wait and wait and wait and maybe we don't find it, mm. most of us. Mm. Um, what sorts of symbolism and, um, you know, what, what, are the, what are the key ingredients to a ritual that you would, you would have held um, through Earthsong? Hmm. Well, it's important that the um, people participating in the ritual uh, are participants and not just observers. So mm. various ways to participate and connect and join. Uh, we, need, we need some music or beat mm-hmm. or something. We need something spoken, mm. but not too much, mm. not too many words that's evocative. It could be poetry, it could be... A quote, it could be, you know, any of those sorts of things. We need visual stimulation, so the setting, mm-hmm. the, the place, it, we're, place we're gathering, the kind of setting that draws our attention is important. Uh, interacting a little bit with mm. people in the group, so finding a way to uh, share our insights, uh, maybe sharing little bit of nourishment but not always necessarily mm. just to make that connection back to the the meal idea mm. um, and it's uh, sometimes some kind of a movement or yeah just those sorts of things I think together depending on the group and you know what nourishes them uh, is good mm. all done with a s- sort of earth consciousness would you say so all yes of these absolutely of, yeah. yes yes 
So it's interesting. Um, I've had experiences where people are coming together to create a ritual mm. and uh, sometimes, not often, but sometimes people bring something and I think, well, how does this fit the focus really? How do, if we put earth mm. first and mm. if we say earth is a source of our nourishment and uh, then uh, is there a way of um, whatever we bring in being incorporated into that or are there certain things that we would select out maybe because it's taking us back to that kind of other focus which reflects a different worldview. Mm. Yeah. So there is a... I guess when a group is getting together and experimenting, mm. uh, you know, there's a great opportunity to sort of talk things through and say, "Oh, well, I would, mm. I would, I would, you know, I would question that, or this mm. is this is a this is a, a new way to bring something that comes from here and bring it into the new consciousness." Mm. Yeah, it just varies a lot. At Genesis Farm, again, we would do certain things like they had this um, reconciliation walk through the farmland. That was mm. very very powerful and um, was part of what people would do if they were there over Easter. It would be a Good Friday mm. kind of walk, and so an artist had been there to implement different installations at various moments. And there'd be something, for example, like an old tree that someone had a barbed wire fence against it when it was young, and now of course the tree had grown and the barbed wire was into the fence. Mm. And so there would be a particular station there of reflecting on earth suffering mm. while you're connecting with the traditional Christian thing of Jesus suffering and death. So just things like that. Um, mm. You know, there are ways to do it where it um, takes it into a new context mm. for people who want to uh, yeah, still celebrate. Mm. And there have been various efforts too from different people like the Columbans mm. one year had that stations of the forest production yes. yeah mm. so rather than the stations of the cross it was the stations of the forest so people are doing that and it is certainly a place for it mm. um, and it's a way of enabling all of us i suppose to to feel free to move from from something that we've known so well to something a bit new mm. so i can see a lot of resonance with some of the symbols that might have this new earth consciousness applied um what about some of our language uh, well that's <laughs> yes uh, uh, language the language absolutely is a critical issue uh if you just go back to what i said about very earlier about we are a communion of subjects not a collection of objects that's just a tiny sentence mm. and depending on what you use it gives you a totally different worldview mm. and the same is true within the language of the uh, ritual, the celebrations, the tradition, uh, there is a way, I think, of making them, changing the language to become much more inclusive and open. Uh, but if I'm hearing the language that's separating and mm. hierarchical, then mm. that, that's not helpful to deepening my understanding mm. and my commitment to an ecological view I suppose mm -hmm. mm. so what about the language of prayer um, can we work with that at all I mean we're, like, traditionally there's a lot of separation about you know mm. a god that's kind of remote um, yes yes what can we do with that oh uh, prayer can easily I think easily <laughs> be transformed mm. the language of prayer mm -hmm. uh, that just to 
it be aware of, okay, what does this word signify in the old story mm. and can it, what will it do if I bring it into the new story and what other word might I use that expresses something that I believe more strongly now? I'll mm. take the word God, which always still brings me back to an image of an old man in the sky, even though <laughs> that's just an image that stays there, even though yeah. my exploration within the tradition would have expanded that greatly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, nonetheless, it still holds some of those connotations. Mm. So... Uh, to just acknowledge that that whatever that mystery is or however you want to name it, the minute you try and name it, you've lost it because you've tried to contain it in some way or understand it. It's the unknowable and just to accept that there's so much that's unknowable and we don't have to know it and we don't have to name it. So we we can just put it out there into the unknowable without Mm. addressing it to a figure. Mm so much like that shifts quite a lot and then the nature of the prayer and the focus of the prayer is another thing like are we asking for things from yeah. someone or are we being grateful for some something are we what's going on in the prayer and uh, who's it for is it for the hearer or is it for the speaker you know all of those mm. explorations are mm. yeah mm. interesting really yeah in July 2015, the landscape for Earth Song shifted when Pope Francis released his teaching document, Laudato Si, on care for our common home, on ecology and climate. This brought the work of Earth Song centre stage in all Catholic and other contexts. I asked Pat about the impact of this on her work. It must be so. Um, so deeply uh, interesting, if I want of a better word, for you at these times, 10 years later, um, to be in the context of um, the shift of consciousness that Pope Francis is mm. leading. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Laudato Si. And 10 years ago, uh, you were saying that it, back in um, the beginnings of Earth Song that you were actually prevented from advertising your, your workshops in parishes. Mm-hmm. What do you see has changed now? Well, I'm hoping uh, that with that document, I think it's a great step forward for Mm. the Catholic tradition. Uh, The statements there, um, many of them resonate with what we're trying to do. And to have that there as a document is a very important step. Of course, then it depends on who who is going to help... uh, spread the word about the document, who's going to um, bring it into the parishes Mm -hmm. and bring it into the people. And that varies according to individuals, as we know. Uh, But I I think that document, along with this growing scientific evidence and the acceptance by um, the official church of science as a valid Mm. field of knowledge... uh, I think the momentum is shifting. I think the consciousness is growing. Uh, Are we at a tipping point? I hope so, because (laughs) we desperately need to be in terms of Mm. the future life of the planet. Mm. Uh, But certainly that gave me great heart, Mm. that document, and I just loved the language of it. The intent was about dialogue. Mm. It was about evoking an emotional response maybe, uh, one we could resonate with, the language 
by and large was uh, engaging and easy for a layperson to read, as someone who's not an expert in reading church documents, you know, which mm-hmm. can be difficult to read. I'd really like to come back to some of your quotes <coughs> that you brought today. Mm-hmm. And just to, just to have a think about um, yeah, some of the early influences or perhaps later influences. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what, what would you... Um, what would you most like to share with us? Uh, well, a couple of words. Mary Oliver's poems and Mary Oliver's prose in her recent book, Upstream, have always been uh, beautifully inspiring, really, just beyond words. And uh, just a line from Wild Geese, um, you do not have to be good. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, the geese are calling over and over again, announcing your place in the family of things. Mm. Like that's such a shift from you do have to be good or you're not going to get to heaven. Yeah, you know? so, yeah. so that's that's one there. But yeah. uh, And with Mary Oliver, um, this is just a little quote from the book Upstream, which was published quite recently. I would say there exist a thousand unbreakable links between each of us and everything else, and that our dignity and our chances are one. The furthest star and the mud at our feet are family, and there's no decency or sense in honouring one thing or a few things and then closing the list. The pine tree, the leopard, the Platte River and ourselves We are at risk together, or we're on our way to a sustainable world together. We are each other's destiny. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about why you chose that quote? Is there a story? I just came across it, and I suppose there's so many quotes and poems that I have that are familiar and meaningful, and... It's the language of the of the poet writing prose. Mm. Uh, mm. It it just fits this moment for me. I think this mm. sense of you know here we are at this critical moment and uh, we're in it together. Mm. It's it's not new, but it it just resonates for some reason, which mm. I can't explain. But I keep coming back to it. Mm. Uh, so there's something there in it for me. You also, in your workshops, use a lot of the work of Joanna Macy. Is there some link that you can make with that particular quote that you've chosen and Hmm. something about her work as well that moves you? Hmm. So, well, Joanna would uh, echo those thoughts that everything's part of the whole and we're in it together. Her inspiration uh, comes from the courage she has shown and lived throughout her life. And particularly the the work that reconnects, the process uh, of moving from gratitude for our own personal life and life itself Mm. to being open to the grief and pain and suffering of the world that we're experiencing so uh, dramatically at the current time, such that 
the very life itself is close to no turning back really mm. uh, and her insight that unless we actually open ourselves to that pain that we feel for the loss and for the damage and the destruction then a lot of energy goes into living and acting as though business goes on as usual mm. that really deeply down deep down we all care about this loss and unless we open ourselves to it a lot of energy will go into repressing it or keeping it at bay but when we open ourselves to it it may break our heart she says but it also opens up new energy and can inspire the courage that's needed to make the changes that we actually need to make in order to give Earth a chance. Earth will go on without us, but we, at this point, still have some sense that if we make the changes, it won't be too late for humans within that process. Mm. You mentioned that, you know, the, in the face of no turning back, the species are unlikely to, you know, the planet's unlikely to restore itself to how it once was, perhaps even mm. in our own lifetimes. Yes. Um, and you, in your work, you're always uh, introducing others to a new way of thinking, a new way of being on the planet and in relationship with all other forms of life. And I'd, I'm just curious about how you yourself sustain this, there is a passion in me, really, that is stronger than anything I've had in my life before. So that itself motivates. Uh, I'm not perfect in any way. Let's not start <laughs> thinking I've got this worked out. Um, I haven't. Uh, I've learned to not beat myself up when I you know, do things that I know are not what I ideally want to do. That's an important lesson. I have great trust that it's a bit of Paul Hawkins' sense of um, blessed unrest, that there are humans within this life system who are doing all sorts of good. And this he calls Earth's immune response. It's all these little groups mm -hmm. all around the planet working for Earth, working for justice, working for Indigenous rights. And that together, that is a response to what's going on. It's invisible, not connected, but it's there. And so there's got to be a lot of trust. Mm. Even if the facts are devastating and it looks hopeless, that's no reason to give up. And Joanna is very strong on that as well, mm. that we need to be doing as much as we can with the insights that we have and constantly being open to exploring okay well I thought that was a good thing to do but the implications of that are actually not quite so good so there's always learning about what what do we need to know next mm. and what can we understand next the outcome is not ours although I do agree that what we uh, put out there has an impact mm. so our our own attitudes our own vision 
actually has an impact beyond their understanding and I'm happy just to let that be and I, I don't feel personally responsible for saving the world. Mm-hmm. I hear some other people who feel like that mm. and I think, look, I'm just one <laughs> tiny, 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 tiny minuscule fraction of a contribution to something mm. and uh, I'm not going to be thinking it's anything other than that. Yeah. So that's freeing and uh, hmm, it's a kind of a, a shift from believing humans are so important, you know, to mm. thinking, well, no, we are important, but we're not so important as we mm. thought we once were, you know. Mm. That's great. And I, I'm always nourished by poetry and walking in the bush, etc. Mm. You know, there mm. are many forms of nourishment that hopefully are not impacting too much on mm. our, you know. Whose voices are you listening to or reading right now? Like, is there a particular book that you would give away more than others or Mm -hmm. a podcast you could recommend? Hmm. Well, so uh, this this is a nature writer called Terry Tempest Williams. um, And uh, I reread this book again the other day. It was first published, I don't know, about 20 years ago. Hmm. She's a, a... an American woman in the desert lands in the southern part of the US. And the book is called Red, Passion and Patience in the Desert. And the concluding paragraph of that book has been something that has guided uh, a group of women friends and I in 2009 decided we were going to do a silent witness in the Mm -hmm. city every month. And we did it. There was a conference of world religions at the time going on. So we decided we'd do our first one at the beginning of outside the building of that. So we – and this was the guiding uh, statement for this group for um, creating this little act. I'll just read it now and then I'll talk a little bit more about how we we do the the witness, if that's okay. So the eyes of the future are looking back at us and they are praying for us to see beyond our own time. They are kneeling with hands clasped, that we might act with restraint, that we might leave room for the life that is destined to come. To protect what is wild is to protect what is gentle. Perhaps the wildness we fear is the pause between our own heartbeats the silent space that says we live only by grace. Wilderness lives by this same grace. Wild mercy is in our hands. So that would be the beginning of our ritual together. We dress in white in the summer and black in the winter and we have these signs so that people who are watching us don't think, well, they might think we're crazy. So we say, join us for five minutes of mindfulness. You used to say contemplation, we changed it to mindfulness. Uh, And then we say we turn inwards to uh, mourn the loss of Earth's creatures and we turn outwards to celebrate Earth's wild creatures. And we have just a little Tibetan bell and we just stand there and we ring the bell three times to start and then every five minutes we face the other direction and we do that for an hour. And we did it in the city square until they started digging it up for the underground rail. So we've been doing it since 2009. Mm. And then um, 
And then we went to the city library, which was another space you were allowed to go into. And we haven't actually done it this year, and it's, it'll be interesting to see whether we regather or not. But that's been a, a lovely, very powerful way of um, nurturing. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. It strikes me as a, a very creative response that might not seem like an obvious response. It, it, you know, a lot of people turn to activism or... Mm protest of some kind and yes do you see this in the same league uh well it has an impact there are sometimes people join us sometimes they don't and often people will wait until we're finished and then they'll ask us a whole lot of questions about it so that's interesting but people will stop and read the sign Mm. and then hang around maybe for a minute or something and (laughs) take off or or whatever but uh it it came up because um a friend was talking about uh in the time, I think it might have been in Chile, where all the men were disappearing, mm-hmm. apparently in the square, the women would just turn up and they would just be there for a tiny bit of time as a little prey because it wasn't safe, and then they would disappear from the square. And it was sort of like a silent protest about mm-hmm. what was going on for mm-hmm. the men. So that sort of inspired the, the silent witness idea. And it's, it's such an alternative to the shouting and screaming mm-hmm. that goes on in a mm-hmm. protest. Yeah. Well, we were all people of a similar age to me, so we sort of had gone through a lot of that and thought, how how effective is that as a form of protest and what might this do? And we were doing it for ourselves as much as for any mm-hmm. impact it would have, mm. just to between the group. Mm. So for those who are slowly chipping away and trying to change the consciousness in terms of the new story and the new awareness, mm-hmm. um, waking others up mm. in the same way that Earth Song was, um, what advice would you give to others continuing this work today? Mm. <laughs> uh, take time to be attentive to how you are within yourself. Um, Keep exploring and opening yourself to anything and then reflecting on that. Any, any input that comes from any field, okay, what does this say? How does it fit with where I'm called to be or whatever word you want to use for that or where I want to be? Um, and just, I mean, trusting that there's an energy that's through us all, that's larger than us, that's beyond our imagining, that um, already has revealed that Earth has, you know, almost gone extinct several times in its story and Mm -hmm. um, this is a big one and it's caused by our action. Nonetheless, that energy is still there. We're not more powerful than it and we want to go with the flow of that creative energy and... That's a great mm. life purpose, really, mm. and just be confident and do what we can. Well, we at Rahamim hope to <laughs> trust in that, that whole flow of energy too, so thank you. That's wonderful. Would you like to finish with one more quote that you have there? Mm, okay. Uh, oh, here's um, Kathleen Dean Moore, a nature writer, um, and uh, this is from a book called Great Tide Rising, which I think is the last book she's written. And she is a philosopher and nature writer. And uh, this is just one statement about this from this book. Even as the seas rise against the shores, another great tide is beginning to rise. 
a tide of outrage against the pillage of the planet, a tide of commitment to justice and human rights, a swelling affirmation of moral responsibility to the future and to Earth's fullness of life. What a great way for us to go forward after this interview. Thank you so much, Pat Long, for being with us at Rahamit. Thank you very much. Sarah. Hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Bathurst. Thank you. <laughs> and all the best with your future work. Thank you very much.